Well, this evening we're again returning to the book of James. This evening we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. That is chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. You'll find it on page 1011 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. The word of our Lord, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, Father, speak to our hearts this evening concerning this text. This text speaks to the very nature that we walk around with, and so we pray that we would grab hold of exactly what you would have us to hear and that we would walk in the beauty of holiness in opposition to the things that are here in the negative. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the testimony of the Glassell family, 11-year-old David Glassell had played hosts, was possessed by a demon. After witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, his family, exhausted and, and terrified, tired, decided to enlist the aid of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a last-ditch effort to cure their child. The Gladsell family, along with the Warrens, uh, went and proceeded to have multiple priests petition the Catholic Church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon jumped out of little David's body and took up residence in a man named Arn Johnson. Several months went by, and the next thing you know, Johnson was arrested for killing his landlord during a party. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed and therefore not guilty for the crime he was being accused of. This was the first known court case in the United States of America in which the defense sought to prove the innocence of their client based on a claim of demonic possession and get this, a denial of personal responsibility for the crime. The trial of Orange Cheyenne Johnson famously came to be known as the devil made me do it case. If you want to see that more, you can look in a book called The Devil in Connecticut by Gerald Brittle. Now all that sounds pretty out there, but it's actually not the worst case of blame casting or figure pointing that we of Christians have ever heard of. That distinction would have to go to our first parents who are actually much better equipped then we will ever be on this side of life to handle what was thrown their way. You see, unlike us, they had no sin nature and thus were fully capable of not sinning against God. They, however, chose to do what we ourselves are most prone to, and that is to choose self over God. And so it was that when Eve heard you, emphasis you or her, will be like God. She conceived the first three-point sermon 
I know of in the Bible. Her first point, the tree was good for food. Second, it was a delight to the eyes. And third, it was desired to make one wise. Now the application that rose out of that first progressive sermon was eat. And so she did. And before you know it, she's saying, you guessed it, the devil made me do it. Adam then followed suit, raising the bar to an even higher level of depravity with his declaration that it was the woman whom God had given to him that caused him to sin. He blamed God. And so it was that you and I, being in Adam, our federal head, inherited a nature that has the arsenal of finger-pointing and blame-casting set on speed dial. One parent in a secular parent website called AHA Parenting asked the following question. When something goes wrong in my eight-year-old's life, a Lego creation breaks, or he loses his temper, he always blames someone else, even when he's clearly at fault. How can we help him see and accept more responsibility? In response to that question, a so-called professional on that website began answering by writing, lashing out when we're upset and blaming others for our distress is a completely normal human reaction. Now, although I didn't agree with the writer's secular humanist take that that sort of behavior is normal because doing so fails to recognize the root of the problem is a fall in nature. What I was pleased to see, however, was his and everyone else's recognition that finger pointing was without fail universally a part of our human nature. I looked at a plethora of resources and every single one of them asserted that finger pointing and blame casting was inherently a part of our human nature. Commenting along these lines, Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish writer who lived during the same time as Christ wrote, when the mind has sinned and removed itself from virtue, it lays blame on divine causes. Philo's statement, I would add, reflects Solomon's understanding of this issue. In Proverbs 19.3, for instance, we hear, when a man's, a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That sounds very much like what Adam did. The apostle James, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and blessed with the knowledge of Christ from God's perspective, like Paul in Romans 7, knew that this vestige of the old man was still clinging to the necks of all those who claim the name of Christ and were being sanctified by his spirit. And so on this occasion where he's addressing folks who have been dispersed all over the land as a consequence of their being persecuted and where he's also addressing the issues of trials of various kinds, he sets out to both clarify and set the record straight on one very important point, and that is God was not and is not responsible for the temptation that might have been causing many of those who were being persecuted to entertain the thought of acting in ways that were sinful, in ways that were contrary to scripture. You're having a hard time. You're serving God, but hell seems to still be winning. 
Your money is bad. Your relationships are tainted with hatred, bitterness, envy, and the like. You stop praying. You stop or dramatically cut back and coming to church and, and fellowshipping with others. You start making choices that are not in keeping with the things that please God. And then you find yourself in a mess. After which you turn around and, and blame God. He is the one that caused you to be tempted with evil. Here James pushes back against the fallen tendency for this type of ungodly rationalization that holds that God is responsible for enticing folks to sin. He does this by sharing several theological truths that all who are being sanctified, every single one of us, need to hear. This evening, I'm going to comment on these truths found in our text under three headings. God's nature and character. Man's nature and character. And the nature of lust. So first, God's nature and character. Look at verse 13. It reads, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, we find Isaiah in the presence of God. He was a man by every account who lived to the glory of God and walked in the beauty of holiness, all in accordance with God's word. He was faithful, committed, and every indication gave that he loved God with all his heart, his mind, and strength. But when this pillar of faithfulness entered the presence of God, the only words that could come out of his mouth were words that gave every indication that he, Isaiah, was wretched. And all his works were like filthy rags. Woe is me, he said. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. What he saw was nothing less than infinite perfection, infinite holiness, holy otherness. In Exodus chapter 3, God appearing to Moses through a burning bush tells him to take off his shoes. For he, Moses, a sinner, was on holy ground. The presence of God made that ground what it was at that moment. Concerning God, there is no variation or shadow due to change, as verse 17 in this very chapter tells us. He is sinless and will remain that way. And as such, nothing that exists, including God himself, can cause him to sin. And it is out of this nature that we see and understand God's character. And here I'm defining character utilizing the Oxford Dictionary definition which defines it as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. God's character is such that he cannot be tempted, and he's in incapable of tempting anyone with evil. It finds no place in him. Now I can hear someone thinking, but wait a minute, Dean. On a couple of occasions, I've heard you say that God never wastes words. And so if ever he says something to do something or don't do something in Scripture, it's because man is capable of doing it. Well, I seem to remember, Dean, that after the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, one thing that he said was, lead us not 
into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if God cannot lead anyone into temptation, Dean, then why aren't we being taught something? Why are we being taught something that does not need to be said? And by Jesus himself. John MacArthur addressed this question by writing, The assertion is that we ask our Heavenly Father not to lead us into a testing of our faith that because of our immaturity and weakness could become unbearable temptation to evil. He then goes on to write, reinforcing what James says at the end of verse 13, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.13 assures us that no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will endure it. God, he concludes, allows trials or testing in which the temptation can occur, not to solicit believers or tempt them to sin, but to move them, to move us to a greater level of endurance. And that is exactly what James communicated to us in verses 2 through 4 of this chapter. So God tests us like he did Abraham with Isaac on Mount Moriah, like he did Israel with the manna that rained down from heaven. And as Dan Doriani stated, the test of Abraham revealed the strength of his faith, but the test of Israel revealed their lack of faith. Both tests revealed where they were and where they needed to be. Both tests uh, revealed the fact that they were either walking with the Lord or not, and they needed to either repent or to continue on with the Lord. Both were used in their growing, if you will, towards the Lord. Not it was meant to cause them sin. Both by design were to provide opportunity, opportunities for them to endure in faith, to grow strong, and to receive a crown. So, okay, James, so now the question becomes, if God does not tempt us, who or what does? Our next heading man's nature and character. James pulls no punches here. He gets right to it. Look at verse 14. It reads, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In the 1956 classic, The Bad Seed, a psychological thriller, little eight-year-old Rhoda loses a penmanship competition to a fellow classmate named Claude. Claude is awarded a medal for his accomplishment and all seems well, that is until Claude turns up dead. It appears he had drowned in a lake. As the movie goes on, it's revealed that innocent looking, nice looking eight-year-old Rhoda killed Claude by hitting him multiple times in his head with her tap dance shoes. When asked why Rhoda confessed that she killed Claude for the medal he had won, she also went on to confirm her adopted mom's suspicion that she had previously killed an elderly woman to acquire a keepsake that was owned by that woman. Now, one of the reasons, this, this film was huge. I actually had to 
to, to watch it as part of one of my psychological classes in my undergrad, but it was huge. It won four, I mean, was nominated for four Oscars and won one Golden Globe Award. And the reason it was that huge was because it dealt with the whole issue of nurture versus nature. You see, as the movie unfolds, you learn that Rhoda's father was a serial killer. Her adoptive parents, on the other hand, were citizens, great citizens who in no way would have seemed to have contributed to the way Rhoda was. Now, as I thought of the tale of these two sets of parents, I thought to myself, you know, even though it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation, it sure is a useful representation of our situation. Our Father, who art in heaven, in no way contributes to our being enticed to commit evil. Adam, on the other hand, although he was not a serial killer, he was a one-swoop killer. You see, in one fell swoop, all of mankind died in him. All inherited a fallen nature, and all are now susceptible to the waywardness of their own heart. Or as Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Those thoughts, brothers and sisters, if not dealt with, give rise to desires. Further along in this book, James asks a question and then answers. He writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions were at war within you, you desire and do not have. There's that word again, desire, defined as a strong feeling of wanting something. That feeling, that wanting is what causes the enticement, what lures and draws, beckons and calls. Commenting on this and capitalizing on the imagery of the fish and animal here, one scholar wrote, animals and fish are successfully lured to traps and hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. It looks good and smells good, appealing strongly to their senses. Their desire for the bait is so intense that it causes them to lose caution and to overlook or ignore the trap of the hook before it is too late. In exactly the same way, he continues, we succumb to temptation when our own lust or desire draws us toward evil things that are appealing to fleshly desires. And brothers and sisters, it is at that point when our desire has given way to the fraternal twins of allurement and enticement that we find ourselves acting or in a place that God would not have us to be. It is the third proof of why God is not the source of our temptation, the nature of lust. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Having spoken to us about that which was inherent in our fallen nature, sinful desires or lusts, James turns from using the imagery of fishing to childbirth, to dis demonstrate the sure end of our giving in to our desire. First, there's four Ds here. First, we desire. It begins as that pungent feeling, emotion, as I mentioned. Rhoda saw Claude's medal, and her desire to have it 
grew by leaps and bounds. Eve saw that tree and the, her desire rose up in her and Satan said something out of her, but it was what, and even then she didn't even have necessarily a, a sinful inherent nature, but she was drawn not by what Satan said, but her own instincts, her own wants and feelings, okay? After that, after the desire there's a certain degree or level of deception that's involved. We begin to give ourselves reasons why our desires are justified. This is where Eve's three-point sermon came into to fro, where she started saying, well, you know, it does look good. And you know that she probably said, you know, God said you'll die. Well, you know, you probably won't die. Like, maybe Satan is right. You know, she, God is just trying to, like, Keep us around the edges, you know, and you start rationalizing this thing away, right? And so she does that. And then we start to design. That is, we start planning how we're going to fulfill the emotional desires that we've rationalized with our minds. And notice that this kind of stuff, this designing often takes place in darkness. You know, when we try to figure out how to go cheat, how to, lie, how to do whatever, it takes place in darkness. That ought to give you some inkling of the fact that it is not of God. But we start designing, planning how we're going to fulfill the emotional desires that we've rationalized with our minds. And lastly, there is disobedience. We act out. Our design produces disobedience to God's law, which then gives rage Rise to what? The wages of sin, which is what? Death. Proverbs 14, 12. For those who are rationalizing a way, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I can't help but believe that what James is describing here is what the writer of Proverbs had in mind. On November 24, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Aaron Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. I'd venture to say that his actions weren't caused, as his lawyer was trying to say. His actions were not caused by some form of demonic possession, but rather as a consequence of his going down the same road as his distant cousin, Cain. In Genesis 4, after he saw Cain acting like a spoiled two-year-old who did not get what he wanted, God told him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you, you, Cain, must rule over it. Cain, as you know, did not listen to God as we often do not when we read scripture, when we hear the word of God preach, when we know that which is right and we do not listen. Cain did not listen to God. And as a result, he succumbed to the wretchedness of his own heart and gave in to the enticement to murder. Brothers and sisters, we, like Cain, have a fallen nature a new creation, yes, but with the old man clinging hard, besetting sins raging for prominence, and an enemy who has no problem whatsoever helping us down paths 
of unrighteousness for his name's sake. So how are we to overcome? Paul tells us in Galatians 5, chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the what? desires of the flesh, the desires of the human nature. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For those of us who have genuinely professed Christ, he has given us his spirit and his word. The same book and chapter that tells us what the fruit of the spirit are also tells us what walking in submission to our human nature looks like. As Christians, we are called to walk in and submit to the spirit and the work that he is doing in us. As soon as we feel ourselves thinking and desiring in ways that are contrary to his leading and his work, we are to immediately run, not walk, run to our shepherd who according to scripture sympathizes with our affliction. I'm going through the book of Daniel in summer school, in summer school, Sunday school. And we, when we got to chapter three, we saw Cedric, Mejak, and Abednego. And we saw the king create, or had an image created, a 90-foot image. And he had these men. He had everyone, all the high council, all the people in high power bowing before that. And he called them because he heard that they were not willing to bow. And when he said to them, look, bow down, they could have sat there and they could have did what? Start rationalizing and reasoning. But they said, hey, king, we don't even have to give thought to this thing. We are not going to bow down. And God can deliver us. And if he chose not to, we still ain't doing it. They knew God's word. They knew that God was sovereign. And they made up their mind that they were going to walk with God. If they were in the New Testament, they would say we would rather walk in the spirit and have our head chopped off. They are my heroes. You see, one of them. All right? So how are we then again to overcome? Jesus is our strength. And thus we hear the writer of Hebrews saying, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, what Lehman Strauss wrote here in closing. He wrote, are you tempted from within or enticed from without? Come to the Savior. Have you yielded to temptation? Come to the Savior. Confess all to him now. If you have yielded to temptation, you need mercy. If you confess your sin to him Divine mercy will be extended to you. If you are being tempted, you need grace to resist evil. And as you come to him, grace will be extended to you. While there is still time and before it is too late, he said, come. Brothers and sisters, our God has promised 
to be there for us. Not, let us not neglect the benefits of so great a salvation. I see that I have the time. I didn't know if I would have the time to read this, but this was given to the pastoral staff by Carl Camberkamp. It says, what does God intend when you come to his word? And I wanted to read the second thing here. God intends for his revelation to be the alone authoritative text for your spiritual formation. Guard against allowing any other authority to become your authority for Christian formation. That is your sanctification. And this is especially why I wanted to read this. Especially guard against your needs, wants, and feelings becoming the voice of authority. Let God be God and all else be anathema. Run from the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Run from those things that would move you away from God. My heart hurts me when I see people blaming in our society today. We have a whole group, a whole ethnic group of folks that are blaming things outside of themselves and things that happened when they weren't even alive and using that as a justification to loot and to riot and you have people in governing authority who are excusing that and calling it protest while they themselves point the fingers at each other for all sorts of stuff. Finger pointing and blame casting all around us in society. In the midst of all that, we as the people of God can shine as a light and show what it looks like to go before God and confess our sins to him to confess our sins to one another, to take hold and, and, and be authority, be accountable for the things that we have done and know that our God has forgiven us and is providing us grace in the time of need to overcome anything and all things that we might be tempted with. Let us not neglect so great a salvation, so great a rescue, let us walk with our Lord in the beauty of holiness and resist the devil so that he might flee and we might run with our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times when we have blamed you for that which you had no part of, for our devaluing of your holiness and intentions towards us. We acknowledge that we are indeed drawn away by our own desires and pro to abandon you, the God we love, for things that cannot produce anything good apart from you. Give us, we pray, the grace to submit to the leading and promptings of your spirit, to understand and walk according to the dictates of your word, and to stand firm in the fate that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Glorify yourself through the work of your spirit in us. Submit our wills to yours as we give them up to you. And do all we pray to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.